0: Welcome to the Riverwood Chapel Podcast. We're so excited you're here. Please check out our other content and video uploads at riverwoodchapel.org. Thank you. I start off with this very simple question this morning. What are the foods that are the most tempting for you? Most tempting Foods. And by the very definition of what is tempting, we're admitting that these probably aren't the greatest foods to be eating, yet we are drawn to them. And I'm not talking about being tempted by an apple, a carrot, or a stalk of celery. Nobody's tempted by these things. What are the foods that we are tempted to eat that aren't good for us? And so I have gone to the internet, come up with the top five pictures of foods just to whet your appetite. Number five on that list is pizza. Whose temptation is pizza? I think I read a statistic that 94% of Americans eat pizza regularly. Another statistic is that daily, Americans eat 100 acres of pizza As you drove onto this property, you were looking at 25 acres. Think of all that green grass being pizza, just like times four. That's how much pizza we eat. All right, number four. Maybe this is your temptation. Ice cream. People are clapping for ice cream? Wow. Nice. What country consumes the most ice cream in the world? We do. The number one flavor that is eaten is? Not chocolate. It's actually vanilla. I threw you off on that. It is vanilla, the number one flavor. All right. Number three, temptation, chips. Oh, love chips. Chips. You like chips? Do you like those chips? Every kind of chip. I'm always the one that's kind of disappointed, like when you open the bag and it's like half empty already. Um, Supposedly that's there to protect the chips. All right. All right. Number two, tempting food. The donut. Oh, man. And how about the hot glazed donut? Who's tempted by those? It's like, here's what surprises me about those donuts specifically is how little effort it takes to eat one. Like, you eat one, you're like, wow, I could eat probably, and the next thing you know, you're like, half a dozen in. The number one tempting food for us is French fries. French fries. And specifically French fries from... McDonald's. Um, I was reading a statistic that said that 7% of all potatoes grown in America go to McDonald's. Wow. And I was testing my wife because I knew the answer. I said, How many ingredients are in McDonald's french fries? And she was like, All right, potato and some kind of oil and salt. She's like, like Three. I was like, Actually, the answer is 19. So there is something in there that attracts us and captures us to those. McDonald's french fries. All right, so we are all tempted by certain foods, and we know that we have to have strategies to avoid these. Eat this instead of that. Don't go to those places. Moderate, whatever it might be. We come up with strategies so that we will have better physical health, avoiding those temptations. But today's conversation is going to be about a different kind of temptation At the level of heart, your spiritual heart, your your things that you are tempted to in your life that can alter the course of your life in so many ways. These things that we are drawn to, that we are enticed, allured, these things of the heart, the decisions that we make. This is going to be our conversation this morning because more than physical health, I am passionate about your spiritual health. I have been praying all week for you, for this conversation that we are about to have. It's that important. And so we're going to talk. What are the strategies? How do you overcome temptation? What do you do with it? What are they? How do we recognize it? See, God's word has answers for us, and we're going to learn something. So may you be open to hearing from God. That is our The whole point of why we gather here on Sunday mornings, we examine God's Word so that we will hear from Him. And the title of this series is Faith Works. Do we have a faith that connects to real life? Outside of this room, when we go from here, how does our faith connect in life, and how does it make a difference? That's why we've gathered, to examine God's Word at that kind of level, to be honest And as we said in week one, that we would be not just hearers of God's word, but that we would be what? We would be doers of his word. That is why we have gathered. All right, so last week, if you missed us, we were celebrating a birthday. Happy birthday, number 30, to Riverwood Community Chapel. It was a great week. We ate cake. Oh, and also, we talked about where we've been, heard from Pastor Paul Sarrelli, Pastor Brian Bales, kind of talking about the future. It's a, it was a wonderful celebration. Now we get back into our study of James. And uh, this, if you're new to us, this is week number four. And so if you have your Bible, we're still in chapter 1. We're not too far in. Chapter 1, we're going to be beginning in verse 12. As you are turning to James 1, verse 12, let me just update you on where we're at. Week 1, we said, man, there are a lot of um, trials that are out there, and our faith is being forged in a good way, when we walk through them. That was week one. Week two, we said we want to be the kinds of people growing in wisdom. How will we do that? Well, we learned that we need to grow in our relationship with God. Then we will be growing in wisdom. Week three, we talked about the paradoxes of the scriptures. You know, the moments where the high things must be brought low and the low things must be exalted. And a great conversation there. All of these conversations about God's word, you can find online and also uh, at Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, all of these conversations are out there as well. All right, so here we are, week 4, in James chapter 1, verse 12. Let's hear what God's Word has to say to us today. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let let no one say, when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, our conversation this morning is on a very specific type of trial. You see there in verse 12, a very specific trial that we all face. And my prayer, been praying for you, is that we would be people who are steadfast, steadfast under this kind of trial. Um, and it's interesting. I want to point this out at the very top that that word trial is also the same word of all of these other words in this passage of tempt and tempted. It's kind of weird, like there is a word that has two different kinds of meanings. Now, that might seem weird to us, but then it's like, oh, yeah, English does that too. We call them homonyms, much like the word bark. Whether you talk about the bark of a tree or the bark of a dog. And we could go through a whole list of homonyms in English. There's homonyms in other languages, in Greek being one of them. And sometimes the word means something to walk through, a trial, to endure. And sometimes the same word means something to avoid, a temptation. And all that to say... Our English translators have done great work in helping us discern which word to use in what context. And they have done that here as well. And that's why you see the word trial, and you'll also see the word tempted in its appropriate context. All right, so let's dig a little bit deeper into this conversation of temptation. And again, God's word wants to lead us through something that can help us. And there are three separate conversations we're going to have All of these separate conversations are working in symmetry together in this idea of temptation. We're going to have a conversation about something for our brain, conversation one. Conversation two is something for our eyes. And conversation three is the culmination, something for our heart That's where James is going to lead us in this conversation. And so let's go back to verse 13 and look a bit closer to what James has to see the conversation he wants our brain to understand. And this is what he says He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, As a parent, you have to be ready for lots of different sermons you give in your home, and all the moments you're trying to teach and preach to your kids about the things they need to know for life. And as a parent, I'm going to let you know, you probably already know this, one of the top sermons you need to give is, I own it, because many times— whether it's in your home or maybe something in your house that isn't right, something was left on, something that wasn't picked up, something that a garage door wasn't put down, and something was spilled. I mean, the list goes on and on. But in your house, I don't know, maybe it's just my house, but maybe in your house too, many times when you confront these things, a very common response is this, it's not my fault Well, whose fault is it? Well, it was his fault, or it's that, or this. It's not my fault. Anybody else experience that in their home? I think I'm like maybe the only one. Uh. But it's almost as if our, our brains are programmed to constantly be shifting blame. And the more I thought about it, our brains are programmed that way. You see, we come from a long line of blamers and blame shifters. How do I know this to be true? Well, going all the way back into Genesis, let me just remind all of us of our origin, because there was a a moment when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, were called by God to own it, and they didn't. Notice what I'm going to say here Uh, in Genesis chapter 3. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yes, I did. No, that's not what he said. He actually said the woman whom you gave to me to be with me she gave the fruit and then I ate notice blame shifting All right let's go to the next sentence Then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you have done The woman said I own it I ate it No that's not what she said She said the serpent deceived me and then I ate Blame shifting from the very beginning. And so from generation to generation to generation to generation, we too get really good at passing the blame to other things and other people because we are never at fault. All right, now back to James. Is it any wonder why he now goes to this? It's like our auto response is always going to be shifting blame. And now we get to the conversation about temptation, and it's very easy for us to say things like, I'm being tempted by God. He's the one who's tempting me. Blame shift. Blame shift. It's him. He's the one who's sovereign over all things, isn't he? He's the one who has authored this kind of temptation in my life. It's not my fault. And what James does is he wants to preach to our brains. Our auto-response of our brain is to shift the blame and always pass it off. And he's saying, that's the wrong approach. Your brain needs to be retrained and have a different understanding. That's the wrong answer. And James spells it out very clearly that God is not the author of temptation, Now, in his sovereignty, does he allow temptation to happen? Yes, he does. This is a very big difference between being the author of temptation and allowing it to take place. Why? Well, God cannot be tempted by evil. He's not a part of that. This is where this conversation is eventually headed. He's no part of evil. A professor in seminary, and uh, he wrote a commentary on the book of James, and I excerpt some of it. He says it really well um, when he says this What must be understood is that temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God is not susceptible to any such desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring that it be brought about in man. And so, James, right here, verse 13, is saying, You need to own it. The temptations that you face, you own it. Don't blame God. Don't blame others. You own it. Do you? That's the question. Do you own it? Another helpful kind of piece of definition in all of this, I found this from a number of different writers, but temptation is trusting in your own desires I own it. Trusting in your own desires versus trusting in God's desires for you. My own. I am owning it. I'm going in a different direction. I am being tempted. That's what what this conversation is all about. And it starts with our brains being retrained to say, yes, I own it. All right, let's continue on. Moving from our brains, there's now a conversation for our eyes. In the very next verse, this is what James says. He says, But after you've owned it, each person is, this is the reality, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I love the metaphor that James uses here in verse 14. It goes to the realm of fishing. How many fishermen or fisherwomen do we have? Who loves fishing? What? A few? That's what James is is talking about here. In the ancient context, and in the modern context, this is how you fish. You throw out a lure, and you want there to be something enticing and so you cast the lure out into the water, and it bobs, it's shiny, it's very nice, it's alluring, it's, and the fish come, and they swim around and around and around, and you want them to bite onto it. That's the whole point of fishing. That's what James is, is saying here. He's saying that we, you, we are attracting uh, we are attracting things through temptation. And to, so now we move to the metaphor of what we, in our own reality, there's a, there's a certain body part that plays an important part of this alluring metaphor. The eyes. What do we see? What do we put in front of ourselves? To, to, in, the, in the whole conversation of temptation, many times our eyes are leading us into alluring places, things that are enticing. We're drawn, and like fish in the water, we just keep going around and around with the things that are real shiny, and we like it. Temptation. The eyes are an important part. Even Jesus would allude to this in the Gospel of Matthew. After having a long discussion about earthly treasures, he then would say, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Our eyes are drawn to the things of temptation in this world. And so this past week, I was trying to think, like, what are some of the most famous um, temptation narratives of the Old Testament? What would we find if we would look into them? And one of them is in Genesis chapter 39. It's the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was an up-and-coming star in uh, Egypt. And he was handsome. He was good-looking. And then there was Potiphar, who was also the, the ruler of that area, and his wife. And notice what Genesis records about this interaction. It says in Genesis 39, 6 and 7, Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance, and after a time, his master's wife... Cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Casting of the eyes. It's this metaphor of enticement, allure. I like what I see and I must have it. The second, probably uh, most famous metaphor, or uh, not metaphor, but story of the Old Testament of, of temptation is David and Bathsheba. If you remember the story in 2nd Samuel, everybody went off to war except the king. Well, what's his problem? Well, there was a problem there. And then in 2nd Samuel chapter 11, notice how it describes, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And again, there is this attraction, there is this allurement. The eyes play an important part. And so as James describes, he, he talks about how there is this same allurement and enticing idea. And it was back with Potiphar's wife, it was with David on the rooftop, and it's still true today. James chapter 1, verse 14 says that. The conversation for our eyes. What are we putting in front of our eyes? What are we looking at? What do our 21st century eyes notice in the water? And is it some sort of sexual temptation that we're always swimming around? We're always putting our eyes in front of those images. Maybe it's some sort of material temptation We're always seeing the latest and the greatest, and we just have to have it. And we keep swimming around, and we search articles, and we spend lots of time swimming around. It's enticing. Or maybe it's the temptation to be about other things, uh, of gossip. We see other people's lives, and we want to talk about their lives And talk about their lives with other people. And did you hear about this and this and this? And there's always something to be said. And we just keep being enticed. And we could go on and on. Uh, There's lots of things that we could, that could find our alluring eyes. Some kind of success, acceptance of others, some kind of pride. Uh, Whatever it might be, there are lots of things in this world that we are drawn to how are our eyes forming in the midst of all of that are we forming and fixed on things that are building bad habits or are we able to not see these things and go in a different direction why is that important well it's important for conversation number three you go from something of our brain to our eyes and then james just comes right out and says why is this so important it's in verse 15. He says something for our heart. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, the things we see, and then even the things that we allow ourselves to fixate and ruminate on— then ushers in a very dangerous reality. And that's what James is saying, that there is that moment when your brain owns it and then all of a sudden you see something is now something that you are putting in front of your heart. And there is a moment when there is a line that is crossed. The temptation is not bad, but when you cross a line, it then becomes sin in the heart, you cross a line. And he, it's interesting, James changes metaphors. Like I, I thought, as a writer, he would still use the same metaphor. Like, you're fishing, and all of a sudden the fish bites, and you pull on the hook. That's not what James does. He switches metaphors totally, and he goes to a different one. And he uses now this metaphor of birth, which I don't have a lot of knowledge about. I was there for three of them. The third one, we were going to the hospital, and things were happening very rapidly. And so we show up at the hospital, and the nurses there are like, slow down. They're telling my wife, like, slow the process down. The doctor is not here. And Joyce is looking at me like, "How, how, how do you slow this process down? I don't know. And next thing you know, our third son was born without the doctor being there. I thought for a moment we'd get a deal, a better deal on the whole thing. (laughs) That's not how that works. (laughs) But that's exactly what James is saying. This is the right metaphor because what he is saying is there becomes a, a moment in your heart where you cross a line of no return. He's making it very clear, right? When there is conception in the heart, then sin will be birthed. And in my opinion, James switches to this metaphor to give the listener a very grim picture of what's going to happen. Because in the verse, it's like, oh, it gives birth, and so birth is so celebratory, and it seems so wonderful, and babies are so cute. But James, in a very few quick words, says that's not the point. The point is actually death. It's death. When there is conception in the heart, when you cross that line of temptation and you accept that, you can't stop the process. It will lead to death, a spiritual separation, a death at that kind of level from God. You are building barriers between you and God, when you are chasing after your own desires and not the desires that he has for you, it will lead to death. And so this is the theology that James wants us to know. And there's so many more questions we could be asking we don't have time for. Questions about do we own it in our brains? Like, yeah, I own my own temptations. More questions about the things we see and how often we see them and why do we put all this in front of ourselves and what can we do better to to guard our hearts with our eyes and and even more conversation about our own heart and the whole process of going from conception to, to death. But here's the real question for all of us this morning. The real question is this. How, how, how? How does one handle temptation? That's the real question. This is all good knowledge and theology and understanding, but how do we put that into practice? How do you avoid temptation? How do you live day to day in the midst of a world that is filled with temptations? And maybe the temptations are as close as something even in your own pocket. And when the temptations are this close, how do you deal with that? Well, we're going to take some cues from Jesus Christ. He is going to be the one who's going to teach us the answer. You already heard the passage read, but there was something very instructive because our Lord and Savior was also tempted. In every which way that we have been tempted, he was tempted. And in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded how he was tempted and how he responded. And there is something very instructive for us when it comes to how we can deal with temptation as well. If you, I'm going to go back to the verses, and there's a part I'm going to highlight that we need to understand. Because when the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, Notice what he says. It is written. And he starts quoting the Old Testament. He starts quoting Deuteronomy. So notice what's happening here. In the midst of temptation, Jesus Christ is battling temptation with Scripture. With the Scriptures. It is written. A little bit later, uh, all this will be yours. Go ahead, take it. All this will be yours. And then he answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. More Deuteronomy. And so the instruction for God's people, I think, is pretty plain, that if we are going to battle well in the area of the temptations that we are drawn to as we're swimming in the waters of this life, we are going to have to have something that's closer in our hearts than our cell phones in our pockets. We are going to have to get to the point where we take God's word and then put it right into a space even closer than our cell phones, right into our brains, and into our hearts. God's Word, planting God's Word so that when we face temptation, we can have these verses that we will say, it is written, and then say these things so that we can battle. All right, here's a verse that's great, and if you're looking for a verse, to know and to memorize. And, and maybe this is the point of the service. You want to pull out your cell phone and take a picture, keep these verses on your camera roll. Please do. But when we get to a general kind of temptation, what if we were the kinds of people who could memorize this verse and in the midst of the things we're drawn to, and we don't want our heart to cross over into the conception and heading down into the road that eventually leads to death, what if we memorize this? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What a great promise. Not chasing after our desires, but chasing after his desires. All right, that's one verse. But what if our temptation is in a different area? What if it's something material Like, I'm always chasing after stuff and and all the latest and greatest. What if you could have this in your heart to battle? You could say, it is written, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Please help me in the midst of this temptation. Beautiful. Beautiful. Maybe your temptation is gossip. I always want to be the one in the know. And words and words and words. What if in that moment you could have this implanted in your heart out of Proverbs? When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Please restrain my lips. Give me wisdom not to be always talking and talking and talking. And talking, Or maybe your temptation is in the realm of lust and sexual temptation. Let's just be frank. I'm guessing for a majority of people in this room, this is what it is. What if this was, became our verse that we would have? I love this verse so much, I, I made it a part of a, a high school retreat 15 years ago. I still wear it on my, on my wrist. Ephesians 5.3. To be that kind of constant reminder. Because this is where I do battle. This is where temptation hits me. As a man, will we be the kinds of people who will rely on the power of God's word in these moments to fill our hearts? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named. In the NIV, it says, not even a hint, not even a hint. Delete the app. Stop spending time scrolling through. Not even a hint amongst you as is proper among saints. In that moment, we can be the people when we're facing that kind of temptation to say, it is written. And in our heart, we have these words to help do the battle. This is what we know of God's word, that it has the ability to pierce to that kind of level of heart, to guard our hearts, to help us with our eyes, to convince us in our brains, implanting God's word at a deep level into our lives so that we can be the men and women and children of God who are living life in ways that are pleasing, pleasing to our Lord being steadfast in this trial that we face. What is God speaking to you? What does he want you to know? What have you heard that you can apply to your life? We're all hearing something unique and different. We all live unique and different lives. What is he speaking to you about temptation today? That is my prayer. And so with that, let's go to our God as we close. Dear Lord, we come to you and we're grateful for your word that helps us in the very practical things of life. Many times we face shame and guilt. We love the the things that we're drawn to. We love even at times crossing that line. There's something enticing and endorphins are racing through our brains. But then we meet that with shame and guilt and it lets us down. Please help us before those moments on the battlefront of temptation. May we be the kinds of people who who battle well for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of our families and for the sake of your church, for the sake of your gospel. May we be people who live life differently in this world you've called us to live. We give you thanks and help us as we implant your word deep into our hearts, we pray this by the power of your son's name. Amen. Well, every month we gather together to gather around this table, this communion table. And the communion passage that we're going to read is a continuation of what we just heard in James. Notice what he says. He continues on past talking about temptations and he says this Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We want to blame him, we want to pass off all the bad things, but please know that he is the giver of all good gifts. He's that kind of God. And so much so, in verse 18, he says, of his own will, of his own will, not ours, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The part that catches my attention is that he brought us forth by the word of truth. And the greatest word of truth was his son, who was the word, who came and became our salvation. The one who is the life. The one who is the truth. The one who is the word that we need. In the midst of a world filled with temptation and broken people and people who mess up and cross over and, and have sin dominate us, we are in desperate need of a Savior. And the answer in the good gift... It's been given to us by our God through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you know that to be true, that Jesus Christ is the one who is your Savior, then this table is open for you. Come and eat. We want to eat together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if this is your first Sunday here, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as the one who is your Savior, then this table is open for you. We have these little packets uh, with bread on one side, juice on the other. Um, We will come forward and go back to our seats and then eat together. And uh, every Sunday when we do communion, I always struggle to kind of give directions. And I was like, I think a picture is worth a thousand words. (laughs) So where you're sitting has a different specific way to to go down the aisle and back down to your seat again. You'll catch the picture. People in your section will catch that. Um, But this is a moment between you and the Lord. Maybe something out of a conversation of temptation. Maybe a moment of confession. Maybe a moment just to realign yourself with Jesus Christ. Um, Our pastors and elders are going to come forward at this point and ready themselves And uh, when we are ready, uh, the table will be open, music will play. Please come forward and and take an element back to your seat. And then at the very end, we will all eat together. Uh, But this is a moment for the body of Christ.